Welcome to the Living Savior Sermon Webcast. We invite you to join us here for our worship service every Sunday at 10 a.m. Find out more at lsavior.org. Thank you for joining us today. So would you have done it totally differently? I mean, if you would think about some of the massive disasters that have happened in world history, or maybe even in your history, looking back, if you were in charge, if you were in the driver's seat, would you have done it differently so that there was no disaster or at least little damage to speak of? Let me give you a couple of examples. Think of back to 1912, the sinking of the Titanic. Even though you would have been, reasonably speaking, influenced by common notions of the day, which stated that even in advisory conditions related to the number of icebergs along the route, you'd still keep that ship running close to or at full speed. That was just what they did. Even with that, do you think if you were at the helm, you would have done it differently? Maybe take a different route? Maybe just slow down? Maybe something else? Think back to 2005, when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. There was, for three years previous, a lot of hullabaloo, in fact, a lot of press, even uh, a presentation of sorts that was put on about the security and stability of some of the levees. And so if you were the one who was in charge, maybe even holding the keys to the city, and it was three years before this, you can't change the course of a hurricane or stop it, but do you think you would have done it differently? Think you would have done something about that? What about in 2011 when that massive tsunami hit Japan? Those three reactors melted down. Almost 16,000 people died and hundreds of thousands were evacuated. There's still well over 1,000 people that can't go back to their home in that place. And incidentally, a third party outside of the country organization, these officials said, you might want to watch out for some security issues related to these reactors. You think if, if you would have been in charge and you would have been in the know, you would have done something differently? Now, of course, we know that there are two or more sides to every story, and hindsight is always twenty twenty. And this is not about playing the coulda, woulda, shoulda game and how we would do better because being unfairly critical is a two-way street after all. We get that. What this is about, though, is to invite you, with all honesty and transparency, to just step back and maybe even step up and get a very outside view looking and a very objective perspective on things that are happening, disasters that impact tons of people, and really to consider what you, if you were in the driver's seat, would do differently. That's fair, right? And this is the real reason why, because what if it affected more than just tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people, but millions and more? What if you were the one who was put in charge and it was going to impact the whole world? There is some earth-sized, earth-shattering calamity on the way, or maybe even something worse. What about this? What about the cause and the reason for every calamity and disaster? What about the summation of all pain and guilt and shame? What about the ultimate conclusion, the ultimate result of all that is death and destruction and our fear of those things? What about all of those together and you are asked to be in the driver's seat, yes, on the very throne of God, and you have to try and fix that problem or somehow lessen the damage? What do you do? How would you go about providing a solution for that? 
You understand why I'm asking you that question? It's not because I'm actually thinking that with enough caffeine this morning and maybe if tea is your jam, that's okay too. We could really put our heads together and find a solution that would work, but precisely because we couldn't. But it is to invite you to get outside and to have that objective perspective so you can see the size of the problem and then really, really consider the necessity and the size of the solution that God lays out. In other words, my friends, I'm inviting you today to consider this, that God's plan of salvation is immeasurably unimaginable. It is radically impossible, and it is entirely and eternally also essential. It is unimaginable, it is impossible, but it is also essential. That's what we see in our lesson today from Luke chapter 1. I invite you to go ahead and have that open in your Bibles or in your worship folders, the gospel lesson that I just read. First thing, it is, it is totally, unthinkably unimaginable. When you and I are not just imagining what it would be like if somebody handed the keys over to us and asked us to kind of take the, the, the steering wheel and to, to be in charge of some problem solving on a macro level, but maybe just on a micro level, just in your life, what are the usual ways, the tactics that we employ when we're doing some problem solving? I, I think it can boil down to any number of things, but these three are certainly big ones. The first one would probably be the power of influence. We would use whatever power we have at our disposal to influence others. It's a relational thing. After all, if you can win people over to your side and then you have more people on your side, the less likely you are to lose to anyone who's not on your side, right? So we would influence people. You do this at work when you're trying to propose something or to get an objective accomplished. You do this at home in winning your spouse or your kids over. It can overcome a lot of obstacles down the road. The power of influence is a thing. There's also just the power of, well, power. <laughs> If you're in a position of authority, sometimes you might lean on people a little bit. Maybe press your thumb down to kind of get things accomplished because you are in that position of authority and you know it needs to happen. Maybe you see it in your life or in the lives of others who use money. We talk about those who have the power of the purse strings. They, they kind of, that's a powerful position. There's, there's the power of just brute force. You can make people under you do the things that, well, you want them to do. There's there's also not just the power of influence and the power of force, there's also the power of intellect. Maybe force is in your game or getting a whole lot of things solved with people isn't it either, so you just think through the problem. You outsmarted, in fact, and you lay something out so thoroughly logical that no one could ever refute it. This is what we do, right? And this is what you see in the world. A recent article in Forbes magazine listed all of these, strings, these three things and a couple more, stating, these are the things you need to do if you want to problem solve in business, was the title of the article. And of course, it's also fitting that in psychology today, there was a recent study cited by Dr. Cummins who said that the first thing you have to do is understand your weakness and understand the problem thoroughly and then do these things. But she's saying you still need to do these things. We, we get this, right? The power of influence or force, or intellect. These are things when we are at our best and when we are doing good things and succeeding, these are things that we do. Anyone dispute that? Okay. So then go back to that whole throne of God solve the world's greatest problem thing. You think of how creation is so terribly ruined and mankind is broken beyond what any... God-sized superglue could provide as a quick fix. You think of how the world will never be the same, how life left and death filled the vacuum 
that remained, how the present and the future aren't like what it was in the past. How do you and I go about fixing that? Do we use the power of influence? How's that going to go in convincing fallen mankind and the devil and all demons to somehow change their mind? Have you ever tried to convince an enemy to no longer hate your guts? How does that usually go? Okay, I guess I'll throw in the towel. No, that doesn't happen that way. So that one wouldn't work. What about just the power of force, right? Take all that is evil, put it on some like God-sized marble, and then with a divine finger, flick it beyond the farthest star whose light we have yet to see. Yeah, but that wouldn't really deal with the issues or solve the problem, and we wouldn't really know that it's gone and paid for in full, would we? So that doesn't work. What about, what about just thinking it through? Could we ever lay out a plan that would be so thoroughly logical that nobody, no philosophy, no ideology could ever say, nope, doesn't work, here's the weak point, number one, point A, Roman numeral two. Well, how do we know since no one ever before us or even to the present day has ever come up with such a thing? So those don't really work then either. The, something that's reasonable or relational or resourceful or forceful. So then why would God do something totally different? Because that's exactly what he does in our lesson, isn't it? You kind of understand why Mary says, how can this be? <laughs> Aren't you and I right along there with her? Because I don't know if you were paying attention to Luke 1 when I read it before, but that doesn't make any sense. It makes zero sense. It has nothing to do with forcing the issue. There's nobody who's really won over. It doesn't make intellectual sense. It's not rational. It's not natural. It's not normal, right? Did you read that lesson? Look at it. It makes no sense at all. I mean, and it's not even just that Mary is a nobody who is pledged to be married to another nobody carpenter named jo Joseph, and they live in nowheresville nobody cares about Nazareth. It's like the armpit of the Holy Land. Nobody cares about Nazareth. I, I kind of like to liken it to, to Gary, Indiana. You ever been? To, nobody goes as a destination to Gary, Indiana. I'm sorry if you're from there. Please forgive me. You're in a church, so you have to. But it's always a pass-through thing. You never want to stop there. I, had, I ran out of gas once. It's not a good picture. It's nobody cares about Nazareth. Philip and Nathaniel, later on, Nathaniel would say, what good comes from Nazareth? That wasn't the first time people said that nobody cares. And it's not even just that. And I would even argue, in my humble opinion, that it's not even that. She got pregnant without having relations with a man. That's not even the greatest thing. Although those are significant, that's not even the greatest, most unimaginable thing. Do you know what it is? is that the God of all the universe will look at a world that was once perfect that he made and he said it's very good and he loves it so and he decides not to wipe the slate clean but to fix it. And the way that he's going to fix it isn't reasonable, it's not forceful, it's not relational, it doesn't use influence. But God would decide to take on human flesh in the womb of a virgin, that the divine nature and the human nature would become one as cells grew inside the womb of Mary. What? That is not only, that's not only entirely unimaginable, that is totally impossible. That's radically impossible, right? That's not the way that things work, naturally. No biology lesson this morning. I don't need to. It's just not the way that it works. And that's why Mary says, how can this be and how does she complete that? 
She's not even thinking about that great, the greatest wonder. She's thinking about two other things, probably certainly one thing. She says, how can this be since I am a virgin? She knows how it works. She is befuddled that she who is quite probably a teenager and has never been with a man is now going to become pregnant. And not only that, the second unimaginable thing when you take an outside perspective looking in, this is the first time that God has said anything about the virgin birth in about 650 years. Think about that for a second. Let's say someone in the middle of the 1300s has something profound to say about you from the 1300s. That's a long time ago. Agreed? And all of a sudden, you find out that they said this thing that was going to be profound and miraculous about you in the 1300s. Are you going to look at it and, and say, oh yeah, that's cool. No, what is this? This is from the 1300s. It had been so long since God had said anything about this. This is entirely impossible, is it not? And it just so happens that that's what more and more of the world is thinking. This is not just the skeptics out there that question these words. It's the skeptics that I see in front of me. It is also the skeptic that likes to speak up right inside here too. Oh, he is good. And I think you know of him, too. In a recent article shared by the Washington Times, they cited a Pew Research study which looked at the number of people in America who celebrate Christmas and also those who, equally or not, celebrate the fundamental necessary truths of Christmas, that Jesus is true God born of a virgin, that the shepherds went to see him, and that the wise men were guided by a star. A few years ago, it was 64%. Now in 2017, it's 57%. Just recently, I listened to a sermon of an, by an unnamed pastor nearby, by an unnamed, at an unnamed church, who said, I'm a modern man, and modern men don't believe such silly miracles. We need to apply this differently, that this is our rebirth, that it's a, it's a zero to hero kind of thing. And people came back the next Sunday. And it could be really easy to look down my Pharisaic nose at all the other people, but what about the questions that exist right in here? Right? Because we all have questions about this type of thing. This is not just unimaginable, but it is entirely impossible that God would circumvent the natural order of things. But yet, he would even go farther and provide some proof for Mary. And the way he would provide proof isn't by convincing her or forcing her, not by the power of influence or intellect, but he would say, guess what, Mary? (laughs) Your old, barren relative is in her sixth month. Newsflash, sixth month is one of those things you kind of can't hide anymore. So imagine what this was like as these words were echoing in Mary's ears and her mind and her heart. As she started to notice the changes in herself, and even after her lesson, she would hurry off and see her relative Elizabeth, who was in her sixth month, and she would rejoice at the fact when, when finally, as it would develop in the, the entire order of things, as this child inside of her would grow and then the birth, and then this child who she knew would be totally normal as far as human appearances are concerned, but would walk and talk and act totally differently from all the other kids. And when he would do things like change water into wine, you think the, the, the angel's words would, would echo in her heart and mind? 
She would treasure these things and ponder them in her heart and remember them again and again. And then what about each and every single step to the cross? What about the rebuke of every single person, the spitting, the throwing of insults, the slander, the lies? What about when he was nailed and breathed his last and perished? She felt no different than when her child breathed her last. They're not supposed to see their children die, but the joy when her child rose again from the dead? But you know, maybe it's kind of difficult because a lot of those things you can look back and there's not been a single historian worth his weight who has yet disproven the resurrection. The burden of proof is not on us to say it happened. The burden of proof is on anyone to say that it hasn't. But it's kind of hard when you look at the virgin birth and you, you can't go back and say, see, we can look at this historical data and there were her doctor's appointments and here are her charts and that's how we know that she was pregnant. You can't do that, so it's kind of hard unless absolutely all of those things that I said before about Mary's pondering and Jesus were actually true, and that's exactly the point. In other words, if God made all of these promises well over 500 times, centuries before Jesus ever came, and if Jesus came and fulfilled every last one, and if he rose from the dead, which is irrefutably true, then the question is not, how can this be? The real question is, how not? Yeah, this is entirely unimaginable and impossible. But it's here where God makes this entirely and eternally essential, my friends. Because all this miracle has to do with the Savior born from Mary for Mary and from Mary for you. Don't you see that in her words and in the angel's words too? How can this be? The Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And the last thing that the angel said was, for nothing is impossible with God. I think for 30 plus years, she was saying that to herself, nothing is impossible with God. To the skeptic that tried to rise in Mary's head and heart, nothing is impossible with God. I like to imagine herself thinking that over and over again, maybe even as the investigator Luke first interviewed her and asked her, and after Jesus had risen and ascended, she's the one who tells him exactly what the angel Gabriel said, quite possibly, and she echoed, nothing is impossible with God. And you want to know why I love to imagine her repeating that? It's because I need to repeat that for me. Nothing is impossible with God. This is not just unimaginable or impossible. This is entirely essential. You see it in the rest of what the angel and Mary said too. It's essential not just for Mary, but for you and me. You who are highly favored. And of all the things that Mary could say, does she say, this is awesome, I'm going to be the greatest known woman ever. Does she say, this is the awesome thing that you are doing through me. No. She says, this is a wonderful thing that you are doing for me, that you are mindful of the humble state of your servant. And she goes on to sing about the great mercy of God that he had promised from of old and had kept. Do you know the other word for favor? It is grace. This is grace for Mary. This is what she would sing about, that the lowly would be lifted and that the exalted would be brought low. But that's not how we know things. But that's exactly the point. This is precisely where God turns the world upside down. You see, the power of influence, the power of intellect, the power of money, the power that we know it, there always is a loser. There's always somebody who will be left behind. There's always somebody who becomes less so we can become greater. And we really have the choice of looking at which of two kingdoms, right? Jesus would explain this 
thoroughly in Matthew chapter 5. There's the one kingdom where power works, where influence works, where you can either win or you can lose, or people you know will either win or they will lose, or there's this other kingdom where God makes himself low so you would be lifted up, where he becomes so humble that he would be, he would be a child born of a virgin in order to save you to sacrifice himself and rise so you would get the greatest eternal gifts of hope, peace, and joy, and love, as we talked about in our children's message, where you don't have to work in order to win, but God has done it all for you so that even though you and I know that we lose for all eternity, the victory's already been won. And God has not only performed this miracle as something objectively outside of us, that we step back and look at, he has also sent the Holy Spirit to do something miraculous right in here. It doesn't just compete with that skeptic inside of here and inside of there, but he silences him too. Silences the skeptic inside of me and of you as we look at something that, yeah, it's unimaginable and impossible, but it is essential as God shows his grace. This is his solution to save the world. It turns everything upside down so he would demonstrate almighty, eternal, divine grace for those who don't deserve it. After all, that is what grace is. And as the Holy Spirit works through his word inside you and me, then you and I can not just approach this Christmas, but we can approach absolutely every single day. Marveling at the unimaginable, the impossible, but most certainly the essential, and we can say with Mary, may all of this be to me, Lord, just as you have said. May God grant that to you all. Amen. Thank you for joining us for our sermon webcast. I'm Pastor Caleb Curtis. To discuss today's sermon or to discover more about our ministry, visit our website at lsavior.org. Thank you again for joining us, and may God bless your day.